accident that white people do not enjoy seeing ordinary black people's lives. It is no accident that in most of the TV series that the black characters are still, and this is the insistence, are still caricatures. The notion of ordinary existence is denied. I'll give you a very good example. Some of you have seen Losing Ground. When Losing Ground was first shown uh, in a theater for distributors, after the film was screened, as you know, it's about, it's just basically about a husband and wife. The, the husband is, a, is an artist and the wife is a philosophy teacher. And basically what happens is you see them go through a trauma in their marriage and you see them try and resolve it. It's really not any more complicated than that as a movie. When white distributors saw that movie, they came up to, not me, they didn't dare come up to me, but they came up to the people who were uh, working for us and trying to get us distribution. They said, we don't know any black people like that. We don't know any, uh, we don't know any black women like that. And uh, this is amazing because uh, where's the racial angle here? I posit that it has so many racial angles. But what it starts from, the premise of the movie, and I take this back to this experience of love, the premise of the movie is that no one ultimately is going to mythologize my life. No one is going to refuse me the right to explore my experiences of life as normal experiences, neither outside nor inside, human experiences. And that the humanism of that experience is, I posit, the last, the last hurdle we have to transcend. That's Kathleen Collins, director of Losing Ground at Howard University, 1984. film podcast where we explore new perspectives on black genre cinema and discuss alternative narratives and genre film through a black lens. My name is Graham Cumberbatch and this is episode six. It is also the talk back for the week six of the second month of our virtual film series hosted by Hyperreal Film Club out of Austin, Texas. All August we invite viewers and listeners to watch along with us as we focus on a different black film and a different genre of cinema each week and discuss the films and its makers contributions to the forum. At the end of each week, we'll be airing a new episode of the Black is Not a Genre podcast featuring a revolving lineup of special guests. This week, we'll be discussing magical realism and a doubleheader of cinematic gems, including 1982's black intellectual relationship dramedy Losing Ground by Kathleen Collins and Cassie Lemon's 1997 Southern Gothic classic Ease Bayou. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to give a special thank you to Hyperreal Film Club for hosting us as part of their summer programming. In addition to presenting an eclectic mix of the world's greatest movies, Hyperreal Film Club seeks to build a special community around the moving image. They specialize in creating unique movie-watching experiences in unusual, thoughtful, and immersive pop-up environments. Hyperreal also amplify local artists by screening the pieces they've already produced, as well as creating paid opportunities for them to create and exhibit new work. They're always looking for collaborators, so whether you have a short film or music video you'd like to premiere, or you're just looking to connect with other local filmmakers, hit them up. This week, our guest is distinguished filmmaker and film professor Madeline Hunt Ehrlich. Madeline is the writer and director of feature film Madame Negritude. Her work is screened all over the world, including at the Guggenheim Museum in New York and in film festivals such as Douglas Boa, True False, Images Film Festival, New Orleans Film Festival, and Black Star Film Festival. She has been featured in Essence Magazine, Studio Museum Studio Magazine, ARC Magazine, Bomb Magazine, Guernica Magazine, and Small X Journal, among others. She is the recipient of a 2020 SF Film Reigning Grant, a 2019 Rema Mann Award, a 2019 Undo Fellowship and Grant from Union Docs Just Films, a 2015 TFI Future Filmmaker Award, 
in the 2014 Princess Grace Award in Film. Her work has been recognized by the Time, Inc. Black Girl Magic Emerging Director Series, the National Magazine, Ellie Awards, and she has received grants from the National Black Programming Consortium and Glassbreaker Films. Malin has a degree in film and photography from Hampshire College and has an MFA in film and media arts from Temple University. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Black is Not a Genre. We're joined today by award-winning filmmaker and professor Madeline Hunt Ehrlich. Thank you for joining us today. So this week we're, uh, we're talking about uh, magical realism, which is it's kind of a little bit tricky because we're, we're dealing with film and it's, it's, it's coming from a, a more of a, a literary um, conceit, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of really vivid um, areas uh, in which to, to speak about in film. And we're covering uh, Kathleen Collins, Losing Ground, 1983. Um, and the second part of our global feature is uh, Cassie Lemons, uh, Ease Bayou from 1997. Um, you just start with, I'd, I'd love to start with Kathleen. Um, what, is, what is sort of your, what was your introduction to, to Kathleen Collins' work? Yeah, so, I think I first saw the film in a theater, mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously after its re-release. And I, I think before I even saw Losing Ground, though, I read the release of her short stories, What Happened to Interracial Love. Right. Um, and for me, I was also really compelled by um, this, the kind of, Meta narrative of her career and the kind of rescue of her career by her daughter, and also, you know, in collaboration with um, an audience and curators who, and a public that was really ready finally for Black women uh, authorship right. in a way that they were not when, you know, the film first came out. So there's this funny piece of losing ground, I think, in that it's a film that was made in 1982 or 83, but in some ways it's a contemporary film because it's release and it's, it's wider release um, really didn't kind of enter the body public uh, in the way it, it has until 2015. Right. So in some ways there's funny Pete, right? Like it's, yeah. it's it, a contemporary film. <laughs> it is. And I think that's, that's really like the temporality of that is really, is really key. It's like a good, good thing to pick up on. I think because there is this, there's this way in which her work was ahead of its time, but, but also not where it's like, it was still, it was very much of the moment. It's just that the people who had the power in terms of who got to see it and who didn't um, decided they weren't ready. So there's this sense in which, you know, she's dealing with something evergreen, but like she's, it's, she has this, like you said, she has this, this way. Um, and it's a testament to how important and enduring her work is where it's, it feels of the moment, even, you know, 20 some odd years after it was made and after she passed away. So I think, um, and I think, you know, one of the, the central elements of it is she um, she's dealing with something with a subject matter and a sort of um, she's dealing with black characters that had never really been seen on screen. She's dealing with sort of this black intelligentsia, uh, the central characters. Um, it's a relationship between an, an artist, a painter and um, a philosophy professor. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see the, the roots of where, you know, the one of the other documents I was watching in tandem with this is this sort of um, filmmaking screenwriting masterclass lecture she gave at, um, at Howard right. in 1984. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you watch, it's like, it's so brilliant. Like I, I, it's only two hours long, but like it takes you so much longer because it's like, okay, this is something I need to mark and write down. It's like the, the nuggets are just incessant and you can get, you get a sense of, you know, why she made, why she decided to make films. Cause you know, she talks about in interviews. She was never really a film person growing up. She was more of a reader. Um, and she sort of got into it because she, um, she got really attracted when she was, uh, when she was, she was a part of the Middlebury program in the Sorbonne. 
And so when she started studying film and she really got attached to it when she started studying um, literary adaptations. And so like her first film, um, The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy uh, was an adaptation of um, Henry Roth's story. I think that's his first name. Um, and so you kind of get a sense of her, her roots, but you know, she really kind of, in the lecture, she starts from the beginning. She talks about how um, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre and, um, and Janae Saint and Sinner, which you know, at the opening scene in Losing Ground, she's giving right. a lecture on Sartre. And so there's, the connections are already there. And she talks about you know, how uh, the black figure as, as the sort of forced outsider and the, um, the projected center of American, of American society. Um, and so having, in, in making films from that perspective, you're fighting against this sort of constant dehumanization where it's like you have to, uh, in order to get your, your story on screen, a lot of times you have, to, you have to mythologize the black experience where you're either uh, super good or super evil. Um, and she talks about how her film is a rejection of that notion where it's, you know, it's, it's a humanity that people connect with. It's the psyche that, it, that um, you know, attracts the people and so she she talks about how she refuses to mythologize her experience and she's she only deals with real characters that she connects with um and how in a lot of ways that was the problem with getting the film dis distributed she talks about how you know film distributors when they first screened it said oh and we hear it's so funny because we hear this all the time and i'm sure you've heard it too it's like oh we don't know any black people like that um we don't know we don't know these stories and so there's this constant um, struggle here. Um, but I think the film just sort of like plops you right down in the middle of that, that the, con the constant uh, conversation around that, the, the conflict between the, the husband uh, and the wife. Um, was there anything that you uh, initially connected to as far as, you know, the, the centering of, of black artists in a, in a relationship? Was that some, that's something that you had seen on film before? Yeah, I think, well, um, I, I really love that um, kind of echo between the fact that the two films, we, the two Kathleen Collins films mm -hmm. uh, that are most widely available are Losing Ground and her lecture at Howard, right? Yeah. And how that first scene, like you said, kind of overlaps with, with her lecture itself and um, really speaks to how the film has so many elements of memoir in it. Yeah. Um, which I think so does Cassie Lemon's Eve's Bayou. Absolutely. Uh, so that's something that's interesting. And then they're both also, um, they're both taking on the black upper middle class, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's another way that um, like those films have, you know, some besides being a part of, you could, I think many people do think of them as like a part of a similar canon or timeline. Right. Um, there's, there's also that. And, you know, I'm certainly a person who has felt that, you know, as a filmmaker, there is both a need for more stories about Black life that don't just focus on Black victim Hood, mm -hmm. um, as well as a need to look, complicate a black respectability politic, right? right? And I think that Kathy Collins does that, right? I mean, and she she talks about that too, right? In that lecture about like, um, I just remember her talking about like, uh, in that dichotomy she's mentioning, like the need for rich characters where you know black people aren't all bad and they're not all good, but they're you know, human, which includes both being good and bad. And yeah. um, often I think in a black upper middle class respectability kind of project, if you will, right? Yeah. So like just how people like represent themselves uh, socially or perform socially, but also how um, stories are then told about um, that group of people, there's a real kind of focus on like a, you know, uh, maybe like a raisin in the sun kind of um, like, you know, kind of long suffering black yeah, upper, yeah. you know, black middle class mm -hmm. uh, family uh, who's just like trying to do good and like 
society is like this source of kind of an obstacle and an evil. Um, But but in reality, right, like, you know, black upper middle class people do fucked up things to each other, to themselves, to, you know, like, or they're just people. Um, And you, and you really feel that in losing ground, right? Where it's, we're just, we're, there's no white character in the film. There's no white character named Spio either. Mm-hmm. I guess there's like a white Latin uh, next man in Losing Ground, but right, there's really, yeah, and there's like some light skin uh, Latinx folks, but there you don't get a sense of like kind of like the outer kind of white world. Right. But we're we're also not um, overly debating like black people's relationship to white people. Exactly, exactly. Very, we're very in the interpersonal ways that a wife and a husband to, to, you know, an artist and a thinker, um, two people who are desiring freedom and struggling to experience freedom in these different ways and struggling against each other. Um, we're just very located in that dynamic, you know? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when you, t- you mentioned the fact that there are no white people in it, you know, one of the things she talks about, uh, one of the direct quotes she said from, you know, the distributors who are, didn't see them, didn't see how this could make it a screen, she said, oh, they asked, like, where's the racial angle? And when you have, when I, to me, it's like whenever you hear sort of white producers say that, it just means it's like, where am I in it? I don't see myself. And I only see, I only recognize you in relation to my perspective as a white person. And so in refusing to center that, she, um, you know, she contributes to this fuller story, but she's also, you know, paid a price while she was alive in terms of her her film's distribution. Um, And you like what you're talking about with the sort of, you know, the Raisin in the Sun reference. It's funny, there was one of my favorite conversations in the film is the first one that they have with uh, Sarah, the main character's mother, who's an act, an older stage actress. And she talks about a play that she's in. And she says, oh, I'm play like a mother who's like really godly. And so she kind of skewers this like strong black woman figure. And she says, she calls the play, oh, it's very, it's thoroughly colored, which is just like such a great line. Um, and she, you know, it, it's a direct reference to what uh, Kathleen Collins talks about in her lecture is, you know, this tendency to mythologize black history where we, we talk about it in these very staid um, white facing terms of, uh, you know, this is the black hero. This is what he represents in terms of the progress of the race. And he, and she just, she skewers that in a sense where it's like, it's just, it's not true. It's not human. It's not real. There's no point in telling those stories um, because, and not in, not even in the sense of like her personal artistry, but she even, she even kind of frames it in the sense of, you know, how, you know, quote, progress for, for Black art. She said, actually, the only way things change is if humans are allowed to connect to other human stories. Um, and that's the only way to sort of combat this sort of dehumanization of, of Black stories where we're either, you know, uh, you know, there's a reason why Black Panther is like the biggest Black movie of all time. And I mean, there is, a, there's multiple reasons, but like the, sim- the symbology of that, of like being, of course, like the most, the most successful black story of all time is about a superhero. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a really nice element of that there. Um, and you were, like you were talking about with um, Cassie Lemons. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting about that in terms of, you know, the, the element of magical realism is, you know, thinking about Kathleen Collins sort of refusal to, to work with mythology, um, versus uh, the way in which sort of mystical elements, um, whether through craft or through um, more so in, in, in Eve's Bayou through, um, through thematically, they, they're sort of infused in the way of storytelling in this way that sort of treats them the same as all the other quote sort of realist elements, which I think is really interesting where it's like the dichotomy between um, a refusal to mythologize and um, and an acceptance of the supernatural as just a natural um, sort of progression or natural way of finding out who we are in the world that belongs intertwined in storytelling, but has like 
been very stubbornly like separated by the white filmmaking or Western filmmaking practices. Um, and you see that a lot, um, you know, more subtly in Losing Ground, but like more overtly in, in Cassie Lemon's story. Um, and speaking about Eve's Bayou, was there, was there anything that you felt, well, first of all, is that, so, is that a film that has sort of inspired you in your own work in that, in that sense? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think both filmmakers have inspired me differently. And um, it was, I really loved that you paired these two films because I don't know if I would have immediately thought of them together. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to think of them and, and kind of like revisit parts of them um, in conversation. Because there are these, there are these over, like I want to say that they're a part of these different formal traditions, mm -hmm. but then there are these formal choices they're both making that really are so similar. Like um, the ways that both films use the very, like scene, scene blocking mm -hmm. basically as a, a thread of the story right. where you have the characters sort of acting as, directors or participants yeah. in the scene. I mean, almost like, you know, we break the fourth wall almost within the films themselves in both of them, right? And that's like my favorite part of Eve's Bayou are those moments where they step into the memory and, mm -hmm. and Debbie Morgan's like, you know, and I was like, you know, she's like, it's like narrating the memory um, for you. And it's like, she's there inside of it they're in the mirror it's like a stage blocking um i love that i you know that is like thrilling to me and of course the final scene of losing ground where mm -hmm. you know i mean we keep going back to like we're making a film within the film mm -hmm. um and within that process the main character is able to have some kind of agency over yeah. uh you know the little revenge fantasy pointing the gun at her her kind of flirtatious uh, husband there. Mm -hmm. um, so they're both using that, the, the, that device of scene work um, throughout their films. That said, I, I do feel like they are operating also in these different traditions and contexts. Mm -hmm. And it might just be like an LA versus New York, you know, division there where yeah, yeah. like, I think like Eve's Bayou is almost feels like you could like draw a lot of direct threads from like early race films or like studio films, you know, it really, it's like a three location feels very kind of studio based, which, which I like, you know, like high right. levels of artifice. Um, and even like, like the dialogue, like really in every, in every level where we're, we're working in a way that like feels very connected almost to musicals or like, yeah. you know, like, you know, like Oscar Michaud or theater and, you know, um, losing ground is, feels like a New York film with mm -hmm. like much more kind of on location shooting. Um, you know, I always, I love the fact a friend, um, a film scholar, Nzinga Kendall, uh, informed me that Kathleen Collins was one of the English language translators for Cahiers du Cinema the wow. French film journal. So she yeah. was one of the people who translated many of those issues into English. And so I think of, and like, you know, she's obviously, she's friends with Bill Gunn and mm -hmm. who's in the film, um, who himself was an independent film director and um, playwright based in New York. And so there's, there, and it just feels very much like a, like a New York film um, right. that's like, a little looser too like i mean the there's also really just different budgets for those films oh, like for sure. one, yeah one thing that i um enjoyed doing was when i was like thinking about this conversation um i like kind of did a little i was like looking at budgets because i feel like that's an you know that's an important way of understanding films too um and kind of like the the ethics of the film too Absolutely. like it's like it's both like understanding like the industry and the context of the film and the filmmaker, but it's also like, it can be an ethical position as well, or like a, a you know, like, so like losing ground, uh, the number I found was 125K. 
Eve's Bayou is three million. Yeah. And to give some perspective, I have some others. She's got to have it, which I feel like owes a lot to losing ground. Yeah, absolutely. Comes out in 1986 is 175k. Um, Daughters of the Dust 1991 is 800k. Okay. Um, and then I also I also thought about Sugarcane Alley used on Palsy's film, which is 1983, mm. less than a million. Um, so just to like give like a little sense, I mean, Eve's Bay was by far the 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 biggest budget there and um that that like plays into how it feels different yeah. too right there's a, i i think that's you know it's spot on obviously i think uh and you know we've talked in previous episodes but budgets are super they're not i think they are like you said that that's a great way of phrasing it they deal with the ethics of the film it's like the the energy of the film the ethos of it how they approach the storytelling has so much to do with, you know, budget is really just another artistic or aesthetic constraint. And so you deal with it in the same way you do other things. Um, you know, there's, I thought, I think there's like a nice metaphor with like the film within a film of losing ground where it's like, there's, you know, when we first see the, sh uh, the director uh, shooting the film, he's, he's narrating a shot that Kathleen Collins is making but it doubles as the shot of the film that he's making. And there's this, there's this metaphor there of just like, okay, two birds with one stone. There's just like this, this, this guerrilla filmmaking vibe where it's just like, listen, that we'll just knock out two things at once. And this sort of disembodied um, director that narrates those stories, uh, the film within a film uh, is really great. And I actually, you know, we're not, in these first few months of the series, we're not covering any Spike films, but obviously it comes up um, and I, I had almost forgotten about she's got to have it, and that there's the dance interlude, and that's like straight mm -hmm. from losing ground. Um, straight from it. It's yeah. just like, um, I feel it's, about that. It's so intense it's, when you realize that. it's so intense, and I, it's it's funny because it's like it's both like beautiful, and especially the way Spike uses it in terms of like it's the only color segment in the film, um, but it's also like it's it also feels a little. bit, makes you feel a little some kind of way, like in terms of what film got made and distributed and yeah. what's famous. The fact that Kathleen Collins <laughs> is a woman and Spike is not. Um, so that I think there's, there's always, but again, we're getting at the, the grit of it in terms of black artists and black filmmakers. There are no heroes and villains, you know, like people, there's, there's a constant struggle within a struggle. So I think there's, there's an element of that there too. But yeah, I mean, I think, especially what you're talking about versus Ease by you, which is more of a classic Hollywood approach. Um, and you can kind of see the way she, I mean, even in terms of the casting, like um, Lynn Whitfield is like, she is just an old school. She has this sort of like, um, you know, Liz Taylor type energy and beauty and like, and they use that in the film and the, the setting of the film in the sixties and the costuming um, there's a certain glamour to it. The casting of Diane Carroll, obviously, is just, there's so many references to like the glamour era of Hollywood, um, and uh, and even in the script, in terms of how it's, it's you know it's poetic nature. It's that like the opening credits and segment. It's it's one of the best in cinema. Period. In terms of just the phrasing of it, you know, it's, it was you know I was ten years old when I killed my father. It's just there's so, so like, there's, there's no like opening lines colder than that. I think in films, but I think um, in that sense, there is, you're right. I think there, there are a couple, there's a distinction between their formal dimensions and they're, they're using different things to get at some of the same notions where I think, um, you know, Kathleen Collins and even more so in the Cruise brothers, her first film where the sort of mystical elements, and she talks about how, there's a segment at that end of the film where she, she, cause she collaborated with the original writer of the short story, uh, Roth. And she added an entire scene at the end, which was like this uh, magical ballroom scene. Cause she felt like it needed something symbolic. Um, and, you know, throughout the film, you know, the it's three Puerto Rican brothers who get hired to help this older woman renovate her home um, before she dies. And one of the central conceits of it uh, is uh, the older brother can talk to their deceased father. And so in those scenes, in order to depict that, 
they, he just breaks the fourth wall and looks and speaks directly to the camera. That's when you know he's talking to his father. And she does this thing. Um, she reuses a lot of those techniques, but like more sparingly in Losing Ground where she, uh, she has this sort of uh, sampled sound of wind and she uses these disembodied voiceover um, in these segments. And then she goes handheld. And, you know, a lot of, um, she talks about how she was really attracted to like the realism of Breton. And, um, and I think there's a lot in there of like the Italian neorealism and some of the French new wave. But it, whereas a lot of those films used handheld to sort of create the cinema verite, she almost uses it as this sort of like ghostly, like mystical element where it's the camera, there's certain scenes where it's handheld and it, it feels more like there's this sort of like specter hovering over the character's shoulder and like this, there's this, uh, and it, she has so many references in the script to dreams. And so there's this like, subtle dreamlike quality, I think that that is really um, a nice foil to the more sort of classic Hollywood techniques that Cassie Lemons is dealing with the, the, the theme of like telling it, like you were talking about the agency of the characters, not only to tell their own story apart from the director, and, but also particularly with the young girls with the play by Journey Smollett and Megan Good, who are incredible like some of the best like young acting you'll ever see but their, their ability to sort of you know there's the opening scene where she journey sees her father uh cheating on her mom and then when she tells her older sister her sister goes back into the memory to sort of frame it differently to correct it and so there's this agency over how you remember things that's really powerful um i think one of the things that is really important about these, both of these being um, black women filmmakers is, you know, this idea of legacy and um, like we were saying, sort of storytelling agency, I guess, what are, what are some elements of the films? And then again, in your own work, as far as, um, you know, crafting memory that sort of sticks out to you. Yeah. Um... I like a lot of what you were saying. I mean, I also was thinking about uh, in terms of context as well, how both these films owe so much to the sort of 70s publishing renaissance of Black mm -hmm. women's um, literature, like um, obviously Toni Morrison, but also like a Gail Jones and Polly Marshall and mm -hmm. um, you know they, they really like kind of pick up on that that kind of literary uh, spirit I think even in, in both of their approaches right like right. there's a lot of dialogue in both films mm -hmm. um, and also in the kinds of female driven storytelling that they're doing, it really feels like connected to those, those tradition, that tradition in particular, like that right. moment of like, um, that kind of breakthrough in, uh, in literature and in publishing, where we could have like these really involved stories about family. And like you said, legacy and kind of inheritance through whip through women to right. like matriarchal lines of kind of uh you know the trauma and, and the the experiences that are being inherited um and yeah it's it's interesting because i think now like right now in contempt in our kind of contemporary moment um which is why in some ways losing ground is this way that you can also look at it as a contemporary film I think we're in a moment that's like kind of post internet um, where we are just so saturated with images, right? Um, yeah. There's, and there's like kind of like too much content, too many images, too many pieces of moving image, uh, you know, work. And so as a result, I feel like a lot of practices, including my own are, are very, are kind of processing the archive. Yeah. And the reason for that is kind of this, like, just kind of overabundance of things to comb through. We actually have, you know, more, more images than ever and access, more access 
um, than ever before to images of ourselves from times when, you know, our stories couldn't be told through films. Right. Um, which is why like losing ground and kind of the rescuing that happens of that film and that print right. is like very contemporary. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, in my own practice, um, I, I'm, I have a similar interest in like, that's partly why I find it to be one of the more exciting parts of um, Eve's Bayou and of losing ground, a similar interest in playing with form and, and thinking about form. Um, for me, form is the point of view of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's also this way that like, you know, now we're, we're not just dealing with stories in the immediate, there's like a kind of collapsing of time, um, which I guess, you know, Cassie Lemons was doing too. Yeah. Um, there's a collapsing of time that I think is, is, is very much about our context, mm-hmm. you know, that we're responding to now. Um, but it's interesting. I also wonder, um, like with just thinking of Eve's Bayou for a minute, um, I really wonder about like how much Cassie was thinking about Daughters of the Dust or in conversation with it. Um, and then like, of course, thinking about like Lemonade, um, I wonder how much, you know, the many, the, the very large team that worked on that, yeah. <laughs> including <Yeah>. Beyonce, yeah. <laughs> were, <laughs> were thinking about Eve's Bayou. And I mean, obviously Daughters of the Dust. Um, but like a kind of Southern Gothic tradition too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like for me, I like, I have to kind of like think of those films and like the images of those films. Um, and I guess it's not fair to say that like filmmakers then weren't thinking about the archive as well because, you know, Eve's Bayou, so much of the art direction does feel like someone was like studying all that like photography, like yeah. Southern family photography you know, to like put together those amazing costumes, as you were saying. Um, no, I mean, I think but, there is a sense of that, like, you know, I always, I think a lot of the, the more, the most effective filmmakers are kind of, uh, or not even just filmmakers, a lot of artists in general, it's like one of their approaches is through archiving, like obsessively archiving, particularly when it comes to, you know, costume designers. I mean, I think one of the sort of formal elements that stand out to me about both these films is the editing. And, um, you know, again, one of Kathleen Collins' gateways into filmmaking was editing. She got a job, um, I think it was like a national news station doing editing. Um, and then the editor for uh, Ease By You, I don't, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Tara Lynn Shropshire. Shropshire. She also edited Love and Basketball. Um, and she, you know, she, cre- she she said she saw a lot of herself in the script um, and her family. And then she, she credits Lemons with kind of giving her the freedom to create her own rhythm of the story. And there's, like you said, the, you know, you know, form as, um, as the point of view of the film. There's, you know, editors get so little credit sometimes, but I think, but I think it's also because there are multiple approaches to editing. You know, there's an editor who works at the service of the script uh, more so an editor who kind of articulates the vision of the director. And then there's an editor who adds an extra layer of art to the entire occasion. And I think Shropshire is one of those. I think Kathleen is someone who strikes me. Um, you know, we one of the other films we covered earlier was Born in Flames by Lizzie Borden. And she talks about how, you know, her filming process was so just guerrilla that she just got as much footage as she could and did crafted most of the film in the editing room. And I think you know, I haven't heard Kathleen uh, talk about editing as much, but you get the sense that a lot of the way that she pieces together the film has a has a lot to do with the editing process and, and as another sort of formal layer to it, um, which I, I always find interesting because I think there's a lot of, particularly when you're dealing, like you said, with these stories that deal with, you know, uh, the agency of storytelling. And so there's this literal connection, particularly in Eve's Bayou, between the editing process and the re-editing of one's own memories and the re-remembering of certain things and agreeing the, you know, the final scene between the two sisters, there's 
this bond, their bond is made over agreeing to remember something the, the same way and like, co like uh, finding a consensus about the way that they think about something that happened, which is really, there's a really, there's a strong sort of power in that. Um, but I think there's a, um, where was I going with this? But I think in, in connecting the two films, um, it seems like there is, um, there is definitely something there as far as like legacy and familial connection. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously mother daughter relationships are very strong and there's a lot of good interviews. But I would, I would say that, you know, they're both really about female subjectivity mm -hmm. and um, as much as we have access to the men, you really, you really feel like there's like an element of, kind of rev the films themselves revise revise the experience of their protagonists uh -huh. or maybe of their directors where you know the women get the last word yeah and um there's like when you're talking about editing there it feels like a very strong choice you almost feel like those were endings found in the edit out of a politic to give the women the last word, whether it's the two girls after their father's death or um, the protagonist and losing ground, you know, being able to kind of shoot <laughs> a proxy for her husband in right, the scene. Right. Um, you know, in, in reality, in both of those stories, you know, the, 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 conflict probably lives on, right? It doesn't right. end there. But our moment where we leave the story is when these women have had, kind of had their say. Um, and, and that revisionism, I think, is actually really still very rare in, in film. <laughs> oh, um, like it's still really, I mean, the female gaze is like, um, something that I think we're still figuring out. Uh, I even like, I get a little bothered by the opening scene um, in Eve's Bayou where like the Sam Jackson, like grabbing on um, Maddie Monroe, uh, I, I forget that name of the actress, feels like such a male gaze shot, like such a textbook, just like, you know, Hollywood bro shot. Um, and I, and I don't blame, I don't blame her for using a vocabulary that is, you know, she's using a, like a, a, like a kind of Hollywood form and she's repurposing it for, and like creating a home for black women in that form. But, you know, um, I think, you know, now for me, I, I take issue with like a shot like that, but I do think both of them are very concerned with female subjectivity. And I do think that that is still a really radical position. Like it just is. Um, and they're just, you know, they're just, there is, there are so many black women directors now, um, but, and, and there always have been black women involved in filmmaking, but that, you know, again, going back to budgets, that journey to like, to raising the feature budget, to then having the film properly distributed and preserved, um, is, is still such a treacherous one for black women, um, that, that we really don't have the breadth or body of, um, historically examples that, you know, that, that other folks have to say, okay, yeah, definitively, this is what, the, what happens when a black female subject is the, the, the sole purpose, like the main purpose of, of a film and what that representation's like. So. No, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it, there is a there's a mirroring of that and when you know when Kathleen is talking about you know white distributors who don't you know like we don't know black people like this or who can't see themselves and therefore kind of deny it and you get the same thing with uh, you know male a male gaze that can't see himself in a, in a film so it becomes and there's almost to me there's almost like a there's there's almost like a playfulness about it because like there's this there's male sort of this misogynist uh, tendency to sort of just mystify everything that has to do with women. Like, oh, I don't understand it. It's weird. It's magic. And so there's this play on that where it's just like, well, yeah, you think it's magic, 
but like there also is an element that's magic about it and it's not because we're so inscrutable but it's just because there is a there is an extra layer there that you probably want to understand so that there is a sense in which it 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 pokes at this male insecurity of like un like this both this very real unknowability and this sort of like mythologized unknowability that works against um women's storytellers and there's this, right. a lot of symbolic nature in that and and ease by you with you know samuel jackson's character and versus his sister whereas like his sister is this sort of black mystic um from a line of of black mystics um and she's treated like she's crazy she's sent to a mental institution and where then the, the dichotomy between her and her brother who is this heroic uh male black hero uh healer for the town um and there's a there's sort of repetition of those dichotomies throughout the film mm -hmm. right or you know like for me freedom is a really big theme of the film whether it's um the desire of the like the main little girl journey smollett's character in eve's bayou like you know and the kids to like get out of the house yeah. and their kind of fear of like needing to keep them in the house um being in conflict right with like this desire to be like seen and like to run and to be free versus Sam Jackson basically like as our kind of male character's ability to like leave, come and leave as he, um, come and go as he wants and to kind of just follow whatever desire or impulse he has no matter who it hurts. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I think that gets much more explicit in Losing Ground where the really the central argument between them, like I love the, um, and the pool scene where, um, you know the line is something like you can just take out your dick yeah and, you know, i guess the issue is i don't have something to take out like i always remember that line and and then of course you know at the end she takes out a gun right and right. um there's this way that it's also about you know really specifically grounded in the experience of women the experience of women within like a class-based performance mm -hmm. And like it not even I think gets to race too, right? Like in a respectability politic and like the restrictions of that politic, um, you know, for men and women, um, in terms of just the like how repressed um folks have to be to kind of live up to some of the standards of that performance. And it feels like both these films sort of take that, take that on how oppressive that actually is yeah. um and like the kind of female desire um from a domestic point of view to experience the same kinds of freedoms that men feel really entitled to of like you know satisfying an appetite or just you know being an individual um and you know like ecstasy is how kathleen collins puts it um but I think it also, you know, for me speaks to the failure of like, she's got to have it, mm -hmm. um, which just doesn't hold up. And like, of course, you know, Spike has kind of mea culpa that with his Netflix show where he's like revisited like the big film that was like haunted him through all his many other successes, right? It was like the criticism of his female character and she's got to have it. And so he like revisits it and tries to kind of kind of flesh her out and like g give her a little more of the feminism that like people wanted from She's Gotta Have It. Um, but I think that Losing Ground and Eve's Bayou did it better. And it just really speaks to the need that like to have both, right? Like um, we need black female storytellers because um, that understanding is not necessarily something that um, a male director can fake. Um, you know, and I think that, and she's got to have it. I feel like the intention was probably from, um, like a pretty like radical, uh, perspective about black women and pleasure, but he, like it kind of fails. Right. And these women really, really get it, um, and are able to do it in a nuanced way. And, um, I think it, you know, it speaks to why, uh, we need more black, uh, women able to, to tell feature length. Uh, stories. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, feature length is such a big deal, too, because like you're talking about space is so necessary. It's, you know, you 
needs space to tell a story that goes along with, uh, you know, budget is space, uh, length is space, um, breadth of catalog is space. I mean, talk about, you know, one of the things that kind of in my own just like thoughts on film and just like hopefully in the series is kind of hammer on is just like the, the difference between, um, in a lot of sense, impact between black filmmakers and some of the more notable white filmmakers is just the sheer number of films that they're allowed to make. That is, it's like the, for me, that's always the number one thing. It was like, how, how do you, how do you grow in your craft? Like if you're a painter, you can paint as many as you want all the time, but film is so collaborative and so dependent on outside resources that it is, it becomes a huge barrier for entry. Um, and I think, you know, as far as like the ecstasy of filmmaking, there's, there's, there's so much there. Um, and it's so much that black women filmmakers don't have access to. Um, right. Yeah. I failure is really important. Being able to fail, um, is, is hugely important to the artistic process, to invention. Um, and I think that's like one of the great things about losing ground is like what we were kind of describing as that sort of raw guerrilla DIY aesthetic um, is also a kind of denial, like a kind of refusal of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also why, you know, I, I feel like I'm very attracted to, to lower budget films um, not, you know, in part from necessity, in part because that's the, the space where black people are, where you can find the most black filmmaking because that, yeah. those are our resources. Um, but also um, those films are able to take different kinds of risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, I think like uh, Julie Dash, it's, no, you know, or Charles Burnett, the whole LA rebellion um, generation who are, who, we owe so much to um, in our culture really speaks to that robbery that happened where um, just imagine if they had given Charles Burnett or Julie Dash, you know, 10 more budgets, um, like how, what the conversation would be um, because we owe them so much with what they had and what they could do in that time. No, I, I, that's exactly it. Um, I think there's there's definitely an, an element of uh, I don't want to I don't want to say lost generation, but there's this there's this element of uh, and I there's also this frustration of pairing that with what was happening simultaneously in mainstream cinema. It's like these the there and I think a lot of why I wanted to to do a series like this is you know, genre, I always say genre is really powerful, not only because it provides really important narrative constraints um, that allow for a sort of, an almost, I want to say more universal, but there is a language that develops around genres. There's language, there's a, a legibility about genre that allows them to travel really far and allows them to be a good vehicle for ideas and in strictly money terms, genre films make a lot of money. And so, you know, we think about the 70s, the same era of the LA Rebellion is the same era that gave birth to just giants of white cinema, essentially with the Coppola and Spielberg and Scorsese. Um, and, you know, there is, there is a direct like line in the sand between um, what America, who America decided they wanted to hear from. And it's, it's something that uh, it's a it's it's a deficit of recognition that I think filmmaker black filmmakers have been working to try and make up for a long time. Um, right, and I would just you know I would just add that I think that you know the ways that I'm interested in talking about it now, and that I think you know many other black filmmakers are interested in thinking about it is, you know, and, and Kathleen Collins and I think Cassie Lemons, um, all these filmmakers who've been talking about embody this, it's just finding ways to work around these systems and like not putting everything on whether the door gets opened or not. Um, And that includes, 
you know, the work of um, paying attention to a losing ground and making sure that it gets seen and written about um, and paying attention to the works of, you know, short form filmmakers um, from that time, whether it's like Barbara McCullough or um, from the LA Rebellion or Madeline Anderson, who's a, a it's like the first black female documentarian um, who's really important too. Um, and you know, countless others, um, because sometimes you know, if if we're if we're only canonizing based on features, we're gonna lose the the thread of black cinema. Right. Um, and we, you know, we I think we have to just, um, yeah, we're gonna have. I think I think it's interesting to think about features and you know, yeah. like like what else? Like are features even? Are features even really the way black story um, that that's really like decolonized should be told? You know, like I like I think like the fact that um, you have like Lemonade having the cultural impact that it's had, or like Khalil Joseph like short form pieces, like fleeting pieces, or like you know that there's um, yeah, I think like you could really challenge if even or the ways that like a black cinematic tradition are not just shaped by features. So I think, yeah, like trying to uh, change, change our systems of um, kind of change our systems of, of approval, our systems of like how we're determining that tradition um, is really important. Yeah, but, no, I think yeah. what you're, that makes sense. And I, you know, we talked about like people, you know, feature having the freedom to do features, but also like you said, having the freedom, freedom to work in quote, smaller formats where there's this, um, there's this, uh, there is uh, this preference or this uh, supremacy given to the feature length format as the, the ultimate, um, the ultimate measure of your quality as a filmmaker. And there's a reason for that because it's because it has a high barrier for entry. So it, it blocks out a lot of people, um, you know, and I, you know, I have to give a shout out also to my cousin, uh, Stormé Bright Sweet, who was also part of the LA Rebellion. Um, and she was, she worked early on in video. Um, I think her, her short film um, series, a single parent images in black came out in 19, 1982. Um, and so, you know, she was working in a, in a medium that wasn't even that popular then. Um, it was kind of still burgeoning, but allowed for a lot of, um, due to costs and sort of uh, mutability, a lot, allowed to, for a lot of sort of renegade filmmaking. Um, and so it's like, there's all, there are always like pioneers. And I, you know, it, you see it in every form of black art. It's just like, you know, the reason hip hop is so important and the reason it travels so well globally is because you don't need anything um, in, a, in, this, in a sense. It's like you just, it's, it's, a re, it's an art of repurposing. And so we've been, we, like you said, you know, your attraction to uh, smaller budget filmmaking comes from the amount, the risk you're allowed to take when in a lot of ways you don't have as much to lose. Um, so I think there's something really, really, really vital about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, just in terms of, I mean, do you feel, I guess back on the, on the genre a little bit, do you feel that there are sort of elements of magical realism that both conscious and unconscious that like creep into your own work? Um, yeah, and I think that that is because that is a black tradition, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's like going back to different regional, like African traditions mm -hmm. of storytelling um you know that were really infused with spirituality and and weren't necessarily premised on kind of western narrative logics i think that magical realism or like that conception of storytelling um you know overlaps with what is like inherently a way that black people have told stories um yeah. Yeah. in our families mm -hmm. um as well as just uh you know, in literature and, and um, in art. Um, 
So yeah, I, I think to that extent, it's important. Another thing that I think of as, and this, I, I, this is not mine, this is um, to credit uh, Mabel Haddock, who um, is a really important funder of black films. She probably funded Daughters of the Dust um, and some of these other projects we've talked about. Um, and she once said to me, and I always hold on to this, that black film is always going to portray in some way, and I guess Losing Ground actually is an exception, you could argue is an exception to this, but mm -hmm. she's always going to portray a community in mm -hmm. some way. Um, because like for black people, it's not just a kind of cutthroat individualism. There's always a sense of community, right? Like the block, the family, the extended family, the neighbor, um, and, and you really can see that and that kind of politic is really important to me that like, even if your film is trying to depict like in the case of both these films, black female interiority right. and like the, the right to that space, um, that it also like holds the sense of connectedness between a community. Yeah. Um, and that's like an inherently black way of making films and maybe in losing ground it's just the fact that like she's making the film in community with yeah. bill gunn and with um that who's uh dwayne jones who was in ganja and hess as well i mean it's like clearly an art artistic community in new york that she's a part of that enables her to make the project she does for 125k you know yeah. uh, but like the that that element is a really big distinction, um, I think, from the kind of typical like uh, indie, um, like PWI, if you will, yeah, exactly. <laughs> film perspective. That's like very just about you know these individuals who have their goals, and we're following that trajectory. Mm -hmm. I mean, like black people really understand that we like rise and sink together. Um, and that's in our storytelling. No, I think you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, there's a, that lecture at the Philly, I think it's like the Star Fest from several years ago. The Black Star. Black Star, yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the talk back that Haile Jarema gave, and he talks about the, I mean, he, talk, he talks about it in, in very clear terms. He's like, the, the Black, if you're a Black filmmaker or storyteller, you, you have to, to have a certain amount of collectivity to the way that you, you tell stories, because that's, that's not only is that, you know, the tradition you're, you're working out of, but it's really the only way in, in a sense in, that we can sort of, um, you know, elevate our art. And, um, and I, I think, you know, the, there is, I think you're right about, you know, there is a tension between the collective and the individualistic and losing ground. And I think in some ways that's why it so easily lost a white audience because as as much as there's there's like an almost there's almost a secret power in the in the in the way that we tell stories about community there's also this element of like the black family that white people expect to see and they it makes them uncomfortable when we see characters striving for individual freedom and you know as sarah talks about it the sort of her like right to the ecstatic um but again but there's still there's still a certain groundedness and you see sarah as um you know she whenever she feels lost, she still goes to her mother. I think there's this sense in which she's depended on for her stability, not only by her husband, but her mother admits that she depends on her being the stable one also. Um, and so we still see her centered in this, granted, like smaller enclave. But like you said, there's a, there's a sense of, even with the tension between her responsibility to whatever her community is, there's, there's, still, there's still a thread. Um, and you know the stories take place, like you said, in these sort of black enclaves that have found found a way to carve out a certain you know agency that exists. Uh, there's a constellation that exists apart from this sort of white world. You know whether it's geographically in um, Eve's Bayou in terms of uh, you know this piece of land that was passed down to them from from Eve, um, but or just sort of ideologically in um, losing ground in this community of black of black artists um, but yeah like you said the, the connection there is really is really powerful 
before you go, do you have anything do you want to plug anything you're working on? Um, yeah. I have a short film called Spit on the Broom mm -hmm. set in the South and it um, combines nonfiction footage with uh, fiction collaboration with a number of actors um, to tell the story of the United Order of Tents who were a secret, who are a secret order of black women running from the South up to the Northeast who were active founders of the Underground Railroad. Um, so that short film is playing a bunch of places, including at um, Rooftop Cinema in New York, coming up on the 28th, and um, the Open City Film Festival in London in September. Um, and then I also am developing a feature film, my first feature film, um, and writing a script about a writer named Suzanne Césaire, who in in the way i put it was one of the first people to articulate black power black um a kind of black pan-african power uh you know ideology mm -hmm. she was living she uh is from martinique and um most of her writings from during world war ii um, she also was a surrealist so the project should be a really exciting opportunity to kind of take some of the uh, formal uh, strategies of magical realism that we've been talking about and use them to revisit this woman's work and life. Um, and so I hope you'll keep, uh, you know, keep an eye out for that project as well. Absolutely. I'm excited. I, you know, I haven't been able to see Spit on the Room, but I've read a lot about it, about the background, um, and it, it's amazing. So I'm I'm going to try and catch that when I can. Um, any any socials where people can find you to see what you're up to? Uh, what are you don't have to give them that either. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe that can go in the podcast notes. It'll go in the podcast. I don't think I know off the top of my head. That's probably a good thing, actually. Google me. A little distance is very important. Google, you, Google her name. You'll find it. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you for but, your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Of course. Um, take care. Good luck with all your future projects.